the Popey Podcast You Didn't Know You Needed, where we talk history through Pope-colored glasses and some of the craziest, most popular stories you've never heard of. It's a real joy for us to welcome you all here. I would like to invite each of you to listen. Do not be afraid. P.A. Jesu Domine. This is a popular popular podcast. Do not be afraid. Welcome to the Popular History Podcast. History through Pope Colored Glasses. My name is Greg, and this is episode 8.9. Rome, Part 2. Carthago, Delenda, Est. This is the second part of our mini-series on ancient Rome, which itself is part of our world-building series on Catholicism in general. We won't be talking about popes too much here, but uh, we're laying the groundwork so everyone can have the same pope-colored glasses to see things through. Go ahead and buckle up. If you want some more info on the context of the Punic Wars, uh, you might want to hop back an episode to episode 8.8, Rome Part 1, for the Roman Kingdom and the earlier Roman Republic. But if you're here for some Punic War action, go ahead and buckle up, because it is time for Rome to square off against the most famous opponent she ever did face, Carthage. The first Punic War started in... Oh, okay, yeah, that's fair. You're wondering why these are called the Punic Wars when I said we're going to be talking about Carthage now. Well, the Romans called the Carthaginians the Punici, not after their main city of Carthage, but after the ethnic group they had come from the folks we call the Phoenicians, and my apologies for all my pronunciation there. The Phoenicians were a capital B, capital D, big deal in the ancient world. And in terms of impact, you could argue they're still a big deal, since the Phoenicians gave the Greeks their alphabet, and the Greeks gave the Romans their alphabet, and the Romans gave us English speakers our alphabet. Now, the Phoenicians had once been pretty much all over the Mediterranean world. Their major cities, Byblos and Tyre, both with a Y, were older when Rome was founded than Rome is now. These cities are referenced repeatedly in the Bible, and Byblos is actually where the word Bible comes from. The Phoenicians are also related to the biblical Canaanites, though that identification isn't a one-to-one thing. Ethnic distinctions in the ancient world are murky, to say the least. In any event, 1 Kings chapter 5 describes how King Solomon reaches out to King Hiram of Tyre to get cedar from Lebanon for the temple, in an exchange told through a particularly charming series of letters. The Phoenician trading network, and those cedars in particular, were a big deal, the cedars being mentioned over a hundred times in the Bible and showing up in the modern flag of Lebanon. But I digress. By the time their old colony Carthage came to be a major power, the Phoenician homeland had fallen on hard times. Tyre seems to have ended up submitting to our old friend Nebuchadnezzar, and within a few generations Cyrus the Great had absorbed Phoenicia into his vast holdings, which, as you hopefully haven't forgotten, included Judea. Indeed, that same year, 539 BC, is the year of Cyrus's decree ending the Babylonian exile. So, long story short, Rome may not have rung a bell to the average Judean at this point, but the Carthaginians and their Phoenician ancestors were quite familiar, especially in their Canaanite form. Now, unlike the Judeans, the Phoenicians would never govern their ancestral lands again. They now lived on in the further flung colonies they had established along their trade routes, 
places like Carthage, which had been founded in 814 BC. Like Rome, Carthage had begun as a monarchy, but also like Rome, they ditched that for a republic at around the same time, too, come to think of it. Now, the run-up to the start of the Punic Wars in 264, Rome and Carthage had always been on friendly terms, with several formal alliances through the years, as recently as 279, with Carthage providing materiel and even ferrying troops for Rome in their war against Pyrrhus. But despite these friendly interactions, it was pretty clear there was going to be tensions between the two great powers of the Western Mediterranean at some point. Rome controlled all of central and, most importantly, southern Italy, as we've seen. Meanwhile, Carthage held the full coast of central and western North Africa, up into coastal Spain and many of the islands of the western and central Mediterranean, including Majorca, Corsica, Malta, and parts of Sardinia, and, most importantly, western Sicily. With the Greek kingdom of Syracuse in southeastern Sicily, this left northeastern Sicily as the last bit of no-man's land between the two powers. But to say the Strait of Messina is a couple of miles across would actually be an exaggeration. Even the landlubbing Romans, and indeed, irony of ironies, an empire who would eventually call a million square miles of water our sea were pretty much terrible at all things naval for their entire history, even those landlubbing Romans could usually manage the Strait of Messina that theoretically separates Sicily from the Italian peninsula. Of course, the strait does have some dangers, but nothing near as dangerous as the overall powder keg that was the western and central Mediterranean in 264. Now, the spark came in the form of a group of Italian mercenaries called the Mamertines, who occupied Messana, modern-day Messina, which is the city immediately on the Sicily side of the Strait of Messina. The mercenaries found themselves under pressure from the Greek king of Syracuse, Hero II, who I will name because we'll see him again. So, under pressure from Hero, the mercenaries called out both to Carthage and to Rome for help. Carthage responded first, and after a fair amount of deliberation, Rome responded too, effectively stepping on Carthage's already placed foot. So began the First Punic War, which would carry on for 23 long years, on both land and sea. Now, when the Romans ejected the Carthaginian garrison from Masana and the garrison commander Hanno returned to Carthage in disgrace, he was crucified. The Carthaginians hadn't invented crucifixion. It was practiced in Achaemenid Persia, think Cyrus the Great, then in Alexander's empire, he's said to have crucified the thousands of survivors after taking Tyre, as well as by the Greeks more generally, with Herodotus describing the crucifixion of a Persian general at the hands of the Athenians. In any event, it does seem to have been the Carthaginians who really familiarized the Romans with this method of execution, which they saw as especially shameful and would not generally use on their own citizens, but would apply liberally to slaves and foreigners in the coming years, most famously in one, well, three instances in the Gospels that, yes, we will get to in time. Early on in the war, King Hero of Syracuse sided with Carthage, that is, until he saw which way the wind was blowing and was given a generous offer by Roman diplomats. Once he switched to the Roman side, however, he stayed with them through thick and thin, at times being the only food source for the Roman troops on the apparently blockaded island of Sicily, thanks to the superiority of the Carthaginian navy. Now, obviously, the Romans had some shipbuilding ability but they didn't have anywhere near the skill of the Carthaginians. 
Unfortunately for them, they were able to recover and study a superior Carthaginian ship early on, and they launched into building a proper navy with gusto, ending up with over a thousand ships. But a real proper navy takes more than real proper ships, and with the war already in full swing by this point, the Romans were going to have to gain experience on the fly. Their first sea battle went about as badly as you might expect, but by the second naval encounter, the Romans had rolled out their response to the Carthaginian naval supremacy. A movable bridge with an iron spike designed to latch onto enemy ships called a corvus, which allowed Roman troops to board the Carthaginian ships, turning naval battles into a sea-based land battle. Eventually, the Romans crossed the Mediterranean into North Africa, taking the fight to Carthage's home. Following their normal approach of hiring mercenaries, the Carthaginians had put their trust in a general from the only culture with a greater reputation for martial prowess in the ancient Mediterranean than even the Romans. Introducing the Spartan commander Xanthippus. Now shoring up that famed legacy, Xanthippus handed the Romans their first proper defeat in pitched battle since, well, it had been a while. To make matters worse, the Romans ran into a storm on their way back to Italy, losing the vast majority of their troops and a hundred thousand men. The Corvus, that spike-tipped bridge that had given the Carthaginians a bad time earlier in the war, wasn't seen again after this storm, possibly being to blame for so many ships going down in bad weather. Our sea, as they eventually would call the Mediterranean, never was particularly kind to the Romans. Gradually, the Romans took command of Sicily, with the war on the sea and in Africa going less in their favor. The Roman fleet was almost completely destroyed several times, and I do mean the bad kind of almost completely destroyed, where a few dozen ships stagger back in, rather than the good kind, where they say, oh man, that was close, we were almost completely destroyed. No, uh, on the sea, it wasn't really close. Uh, they were almost completely destroyed. Uh, but the Romans didn't know how to quit, and they kept making gradual progress in Sicily. After years and years of war, both sides were strained and near the breaking point, both in terms of troops and the ability to pay them. Somewhere in this mess, the final straw came when the Romans, finally getting the hang of this sea battle thing, at least as well as they ever would, managed to destroy the Carthaginian navy, and the Carthaginian senate balked at the cost of rebuilding it. They sued for peace, and paid the price, releasing their prisoners, handing over their portion of Sicily to Roman control, and agreeing to pay 3,200 talents, that is, about 90 tons of silver, as an indemnity over a 10-year period. Now, all this certainly stung for Carthage, but it only got worse for them when they disobeyed one of the cardinal rules of warfare through the ages, which is, pay your mercenaries. Their choice to stiff their mercenaries left them fighting their former army with the new army of mercenaries, thus ending up costing them more than simply paying their original mercenaries would have. The victor of this mercenary-on-mercenary -mercenary war was a Carthaginian general named Hamilcar Barca, who had overseen the gradual loss of Sicily to the Romans, but who really should get some credit for how long that loss took. He certainly got credit for his subsequent conquests in Spain, conquests which allowed the Carthaginians to access Spanish silver mines that allowed them to go from stiffing their mercenaries to 
offering to pay the remainder of their war indemnity to Rome ahead of schedule. Rome refused, incidentally, preferring to keep Carthage indebted to them. For all his successes, Hamilcar Barca is nowhere near as famous as his oldest son, currently just a boy, dreaming of the future as he swears eternal hatred for Rome. Hannibal. Now, why did Hannibal hate Rome? The shame of the loss of Sicily under his father's watch would have certainly stung, and it's likely the way Rome opportunistically grabbed up Sardinia and Corsica while Carthage was fighting their supplemental mercenary war probably didn't help matters. One story relates that his father Hamilcar held the boy Hannibal over a sacrificial chamber with the fire going, insisting that he swear eternal hatred for Rome, which, well, fine parenting there. Wait, what's that you say? What the duck? Not duck? Oh, well, I was close. In any case, yes, that particular story is probably made up, but there were truthful elements. Archaeological evidence does seem to support the long-held historical rumor that the Carthaginians were known to practice a little bit of child sacrifice from time to time, when they were in a tight spot, that is, not like every Tuesday. And this historical rumor doesn't just come from the Romans, because Hannibal, or Hanno Baal, means Baal is gracious to me. And though he wasn't their only deity, the Carthaginians did indeed worship Baal, that most famous bad guy false god from the Hebrew Bible. And part of worshipping Baal? You guessed it, child sacrifice. Classic big bad false god move. Check out episode 40 of the Hellenistic Age podcast for more detail. And sure, we'll go ahead and make Derek's pod my recommendation for the week, so check out Hellenistic Age. But while Hamilcar expands his influence in modern-day Spain, opening up the Spanish silver mines and the opportunities they represent to Carthage, and while Hannibal, well, goes through puberty and such, the Romans are continuing the assertive expansion that is their trademark. And they're not ignoring Hamilcar's expansionism in Spain, but, well, it's hard to argue with someone who owes you a lot of money that they shouldn't be going out and getting it. For Rome, the next stage started off with the previously mentioned opportunistic seizure of Sardinia and Corsica from Carthage. And, depending on how you slice things, you could consider Corsica in particular significant, since, unlike Sardinia and Sicily, it isn't part of modern Italy. It's helpfully labeled as part of France on our modern reference map. Then again, well, I've been squinting at those maps and doing some light poking around to see whether the area that would end up as the modern micronation of San Marino was part of Rome at that point, or if it was at the edge of Cisalpine Gaul, Either way, I'm led to understand there wasn't much to mark the spot of San Marino at that point, as the monastery that would begin the story of San Marino was still several hundred years off. In any event, the area of the modern micronation of Vatican City State is certainly in the Roman territory and has been since the beginning, nestled deep within Rome herself. So really, the Romans have held territory outside modern Italy since the beginning. Now's as good a time as any for me to mention that my first proper series for this show will be a walk through the beginning of the Roman question, that is, in a nutshell, the end of the Papal States, which would eventually lead to the beginning of Vatican City State. We've got a major anniversary coming right up for that this fall, so I figured we might as well get all set for that as best we can once we finish all this world building. Now let me tell you, our Pius IX Pope color glasses were not pleased at all when things came to a head 150 years ago this September. Also, let me tell you, 
I'm not going to keep calling it Vatican City State, even though that's its official name, because I'm not that pretentious. When we get to it, it's just going to be good old Vatican City. I might even go as informal as to call it the Vatican. Alright, enough with all that diversion. All of that was a fairly obnoxious way to signify about 10 years passing in our narrative, but it was also a way to emphasize that yes, the Romans' next acquisition was definitely outside Italy. Illyricum. At least, chunks of southern Illyricum, likely somewhere in modern-day Montenegro, which is just barely peeping in on the right edge of our modern map across the Adriatic from the Italian peninsula. On the ancient map, you can see Illyrians labeled, so there is that, though the territory taken in this first Illyrian war isn't shown. Presumably it's just a bit off-map. Now, it's actually Illyrian pirates who helped trigger the first Illyrian war. Well, that and an Illyrian queen's decision to execute the Roman envoy, which is always a risky move. After a year or so of fighting, the Romans had their first firm foothold in the area known today as the Balkans. Moving ahead just a few more years to 225, the Romans looked north, noting that there's still lands to be had between their current territory and the Alps. I mean, of course they'd known that for a while, but for the Romans, the Gauls who held sway here were far from a soft, tempting target. Indeed, it had been the Gauls who had sacked Rome in 390 under Brennus, and it would be the Gauls who would kick off the Roman-Gallic War in 225 by launching a massive invasion of Roman Italy and defeating a praetor, that is, the second-highest kind of military commander, in a surprise attack. Or at least, that's how the Romans would tend to emphasize things. A snide observation that stuck through the years is that the Romans conquered the world in self-defense. Combine that with the old adage that history is written by the victors, and there's always cause to scrutinize Rome's account of the origins of wars. I'd certainly say we should scrutinize Gaul's account as well, but there is no Gallic account of the war. So, as a substitute, let's go ahead and briefly scrutinize the Gauls. First, speaking broadly, the Gauls were Celts, an ethnic term I'm sure you've heard. Celtic culture is still alive and well in some areas, especially those places grouped as the Celtic nations, namely Scotland, Ireland, Wales, Cornwall, the Isle of Man, and Brittany. Now, if you aren't familiar with all these, the first five are part of the British Isles off the northwest coast of Europe, and Brittany is a region in northwestern France. Now, talking about an ancient ethnic group that stretched from Ireland to northern Italy is impressive enough, but the Celts didn't stop there. A group of Celts settled down in the central regions of Anatolia, present-day Turkey, where they were known as the Galatians. And these are indeed the same Galatians that St. Paul would write to in a future episode. I mean, not the exact same individuals, unless there were some 300-year-old Galatians reading Paul's letter, but as much the same as any ethnic group can be through the generations. Now, there are plenty of other interesting things to talk about when it comes to the Gauls, but given that they're still around today in the form of the Celts I just mentioned, and not to mention the Pauline connection with the letter to the Galatians, well, there's going to be more opportunities to talk about the Gauls as we go, including when we get to perhaps the most famous Roman of all time. We'll get to him soon enough. Honestly, though there are more battles against the Gauls, both Cis and Transalpine to come, the second battle of 225, where instead of a praetor, the Gauls find themselves facing the full might of Rome with both consuls, stands out. 
I'm guessing the full Might of Rome part was more critical. If it had just been two consuls rolling up, then it's likely the Battle of Telamon would have ended differently. But with the full Might of Rome, the Gauls were crushed. By the start of the Second Punic War, the Romans had control of most of Cisalpine Gaul. Hannibal gave the Gauls some breathing space as Rome shifted to uh, surviving, but their remnants on the Italian side would be crushed as soon as all that wrapped up. And I don't know if I've mentioned, but just to clarify, Cisalpine Gaul was the area in control of the Gauls on the Italian side of the Alps. Transalpine Gaul was the area controlled by the Gauls on the far side of the Alps, so over the Alps. Clear? No? Okay. Well, we'll move forward anyways, and we can always circle back. Now, Rome, being Rome, has a little more conquest to squeeze in before squaring off against Hannibal, who's now succeeded his father as the Carthaginian commander-in-chief. Both consuls pop over across the Adriatic and quickly gain ground in modern Croatia and Albania, and the Second Illyrian War is over just in time for Rome to realize that the Second Punic War isn't going to be a straightforward slog in far-off Spain. No, it's coming right to their doorstep. The Second Punic War Hannibal famously gave a shock by storming up through modern Spain and France across the Alps, down into the Po Valley, yes, with elephants accompanying, though counts vary about how many elephants came and how many survived, with Polybius even contradicting himself, saying 30 elephants made it across the Alps, then later saying only one survived the trip, and with other accounts giving other numbers, with 37 being a popular choice. Suffice to say, the exact numbers are sketchy on what is probably the most famous detail of the entire Roman Republic, and the one association most people have with all of Carthage. Yes, indeed, Hannibal marched elephants right across the snowy Alps. You most likely didn't hear it here first, though if you did, I'm glad I mentioned it, because I would totally sound silly not mentioning it, and you would sound silly saying that you had learned about ancient Rome without hearing about it. Now, the crossing of the Alps was tough. Many men, horses, and yes, elephants not exactly used to snow, died, and it's said Hannibal himself went blind in one eye. Now, by all accounts, Hannibal was by nature a motivated man, and a motivator of men, hence the lack of any sign of mutiny during the nearly two decades of the Second Punic War, despite his asking a lot of the troops, such as that Alpine crossing. After crossing the Alps, Hannibal handed the Romans their own butts at the Battle of the Trebia, and sending the consul packing in disgrace. This shocked the Romans, and made it clear that they would need to redirect from their plan to invade North Africa while Hannibal played his part, futzing around in Spain and Transalpine Gaul. Script be damned, Hannibal was taking the fight to Rome. By this point, he'd impressed the Gauls into allying with him, and was working on swaying Rome's recently subdued Italian allies to his side. In June 217, now just a little over a hundred miles north of Rome, Hannibal surprised and defeated the Romans even more emphatically at the Battle of Lake Trasimene. All the Roman troops were killed or captured. The consul leading them was among the dead, and Hannibal, savvy as all get out by any and all accounts, set free the non-Roman troops of the Italian allies, telling them to spread the word that he was on their side, fighting for liberation from those awful conquering Romans who had subjugated them. 
the situation was now truly desperate. There was no more Roman force between Hannibal and the city itself. The Senate opted to appoint a dictator, that periodic supreme emergency emergency office once held by King Canatus, and they turned to just the man for the job, Quintus Fabius Maximus. Fabius insisted on truly supreme authority, having the surviving consul effectively resign and insisting on the other enhancements to the dictatorial office. He was forced to accept a compromise, though. He would not be able to appoint his second-in-command. Instead, that role went to a political rival of his, Marcus Minucius Rufus. But that mattered little. As dictator, Fabius was in charge. To the shock and horror of every fiber of the Romans' being, after gathering what troops were left into a coherent force, Fabius studiously avoided pitch battle with Hannibal. He kept the pressure up, disrupting Hannibal's attempts to forage food and generally applying scorched earth tactics, and over the next several months he earned his place in history as the namesake of Fabian tactics. But the fine art of studiously avoiding a battle you're likely to lose in favor of a running siege you'll eventually win was not appreciated by the Roman leadership back home, and eventually the unprecedented happened. Marcus Minucius Rufus was elevated to co-dictator, causing folks throughout the Republic to ask the obvious question. If the purpose of a dictator was to eliminate the split authority of the consulship, what the heck did it mean to have two dictators running around? What was the point? There was certainly a point made soon enough in Fabius's favor, as he soon had to bail out Minutius from the consequences of trying to take on Hannibal directly. Fabius saving Minutius's life that day convinced Minutius to yield, and Fabian tactics began to get some buy-in, but they were still pretty unpopular when Fabius's term as dictator expired. His replacements, two consuls who I won't trouble you with the names of because if you hadn't noticed, Hannibal's making Rome turn over consuls at an even higher rate than usual. Anyways, his replacements decided to pool their troops in a big way and bring a massive army after Hannibal at the place of his choosing, always the downside of being the attacker. And so they earned the dubious distinction of presiding over the worst, most infamous defeat in the entire history of Rome. The Battle of Cannae. To put it briefly, on August 2nd, 216, some 86,000 Romans, potentially the largest force in Roman history up to this point, though such numbers are always fuzzy, they were outmaneuvered, surrounded, and generally slaughtered by Hannibal's army. About 48,000 were killed, including Minucius, that old uppity understudy of Fabius, as well as 30-odd senators and yet another generic consul. 19,000 Romans were taken prisoner. Back in the city, it was Fabius who presided over the collective mourning. As the war continued, he was again among those leading the remaining Romans, harrying Hannibal but generally staying away from that hot stove, and Fabian tactics were now much more generally accepted as the only way. If you thought things were bad before Cannae, the news of this crushing defeat for the Romans and of course the stunning victory for the Carthaginians, had the effect Hannibal would have likely been aiming for on King Philip V of Macedon, who proceeded to ally with Hannibal, who was still working on flipping the Italian allies as well. 
the Romans had little choice but to spare a legion somehow to interrupt Macedon's invasion into their relatively recently acquired Illyrian territories. But more critically, they sent diplomats who had the result they absolutely had to have to keep things from truly spiraling out of control against Rome. The diplomats stirred up the other Greeks as allies with Rome against King Philip and the Macedonians. By 210, the diplomats' efforts were successful enough that the legion was called back to other theaters while the allies held down the fort. The good news from the diplomats about new Greek allies was coming at a critical time, and yes, there are a lot of critical times here, shut up, because the longtime Roman ally, King Hero II of Syracuse, who had been essential in the First Punic War, and the second one as well so far, had died in 215, and had been succeeded by his young grandson, who had been talked into siding with Carthage as part of the fallout at Cannae. This proved a fatal error, and the Romans besieged and eventually captured the city of Syracuse, incorporating it, at last, into the Roman fold. During this time, Hannibal shows his comprehensive strategic brilliance again by striking the elusive Fabius where he's most vulnerable, his public image. In a move worthy of the most skilled politician, Hannibal had his troops spare properties held by Fabius, making it hard for the folks back home to avoid wondering if there was a secret deal that was the real reason Fabius had earned the nickname Fabius the Delayer. Hannibal's psychological campaign in the wake of Cannae claimed one more big prize we should mention before the pendulum swings. In 215, Capua, the second greatest city in Roman Italy, only slightly behind Rome itself, went over to the Carthaginian side and became Hannibal's winter quarters. After the cursed turncoat Syracuse was subdued, which had been made more of a pain due to the presence of renowned mathematician and overall whiz kid, okay, whiz grandfather at this point, Archimedes. Archimedes helped the Greeks roll out nasty surprises for the Romans, for which he was rewarded with death at the hands of the legionaries. After that, the Romans turned their attention to the cursed turncoat Capua. It was in Hannibal's efforts to force the Romans to lift the siege at Capua that Hannibal came within two miles of Rome, the closest he ever came. Worn down through the years and the logistics, Hannibal didn't have enough troops to actually take Rome at this point, and the Romans knew it. Capua fell, and Rome didn't. Reinforcements for Hannibal would be on their way soon enough. His brother Hasdrubal was on his way from Spain, and would soon bring plenty of reinforcements across the Alps. Yes, including elephants. Alright, we've held off long enough. It's time to introduce the real Roman answer to Hannibal, a young man named Publius Cornelius Scipio. We'll peek ahead into the future and give him the name he'll be remembered by in honor of his literal and figurative triumph here. Scipio Africanus. While we're talking about Scipio's name, let's talk about his family, because boy oh boy his family, the gens Cornelia, which is basically Latin for the Cornelius family, they have an impact on Rome, past, present, and future. Looking back, to give an idea, Scipio's father was a consul. Scipio's grandfather was a consul. Scipio's great-grandfather was a consul. Scipio's great-great-great-grandfather was a consul. And Scipio's great-great-great-great-grandfather was a consul. 
Now, it's not clear enough to say for sure, but yes, that dude's father may have also been a consul. Now, let's be real. When you get a family business going, there's really no guarantee that everyone's going to be a winner. For every Scipio Africanus, there's a Scipio Asinus, Scipio's great-uncle, that is, Scipio the Ass, which, to be clear, is Scipio the female donkey, though, to be very clear, is just as insulting as it sounds, having been uh, earned, uh, when he presided over Rome's embarrassing first naval defeat during the First Punic War. Such cognomens, as these hyper-nicknames were called, did sometimes have the tendency to pass down through the generations, too, for better or for worse. Now, these family groups will actually follow us into the papacy. For example, Pope Gregory the Great was from the gens Anikia, and Pope Stephen I was from the gens Julia. We'll be talking about the gens Julia more later. But we can't get to later unless we get through now, so we'll have Scipio fast-forward his way through Hispania, modern Spain. By the way, the Carthaginian capital in Spain, New Carthage, still sounds about the same. Cartagena. Cartagena is probably a better name overall, considering New Carthage literally meant New New City. Because, yep, Carthage means New City. Those original colonizers coming over from Byblos or wherever had been super imaginative. It's Scipio's activities that flush Hasdrubal out of Spain and that ultimately incorporate Spain into the Roman world. Of course, there's more to his story since Scipio Africanus hasn't yet set foot in Africa, but let's take a look back at Italy, where the brothers Barca, Hannibal, and Hasdrubal are attempting to meet up. Now, the Romans aren't dumb. They know that the brothers are trying to get together to combine their armies. So, one consul, Nero, stays on Hannibal, and the other hangs around in the north to keep tabs on Hasdrubal. I'm naming Consul Nero here because he earns it with his next trick, which is marching the bulk of his troops 250 miles in seven days while a small force stays behind to make it look like there's still a full force keeping tabs on Hannibal. That ruse works well enough to get the job done, and Hasdrubal is killed by the combined consular armies at the Battle of Metaurus in 207, and apologies for the pronunciation, I just could not get that one. Now, I should clarify that of course Nero's troops did the same basic marching Nero did and deserve credit for that, and it's just generally unfortunate that pretty much everyone in ancient Rome is invisible to us except the truly rich and powerful, as I've mentioned before, uh, not to mention women. Remember those? We haven't seen one among the Romans since Rea Silvia. I promised the Romans had women, but again, we're dealing with one of the most staunchly misogynistic cultures around, and there is, of course, plenty of competition for that. Whew, this war is getting to me. It's actually getting to a lot of people, including the Greek allies, who, against Rome's wishes, sued for a separate peace with Macedon in 206. Rome, then, too, arranged peace with Macedon, thankfully being now in a stronger position with their victory over Hamilcar and his army than they had been when Macedon had opportunistically launched what went down in our histories as the First Macedonian War, which, at the end of the day, was a sidebar conflict to the greater stage of the Second Punic War. The Romans would remember this, though, and they would keep their anger towards Macedon in mind even as they sued for peace and returned their focus fully to North Africa. Now, fresh off his victories in Spain and springboarding off the high the Romans generally felt after their first real victory at the Battle of Metaurus, Scipio pitched his lifelong dream to the Roman leaders. 
an invasion of Africa. His core troops would be drawn from those currently serving in Sicily, which had developed a reputation as a punitive assignment for disgraced losers and troublemakers. Fortunately for Scipio, there was a decent pool of such soldiers, including the truly disgraced survivors of Cannae, who really were his fellows since he had also been a Cannae. With Africa, Scipio offered his fellow survivors of Cannae a chance to redeem themselves, either through victory or through a noble death. In 205, Scipio landed in North Africa, and he managed to greatly level the playing field when he successfully killed over 40,000 Carthaginians and their allies through sneaky, underhanded tactics, namely feigned peace negotiations and all-too-real arson. War is hell, I'm told. This particular war basically ended in 202 with the Battle of Zama, with the final showdown between Scipio and Hannibal, though take that year with a little salt because it always seems the war is listed as ending in 201, while Zama is always listed in 202. Maybe Zama was right at the end of the year, or maybe there's some last-minute diplomatic whatevering to do before the war could officially end. I'm, I'm not sure. In the end, this war resulted in Roman control of the southern portions of modern Spain, those areas Carthage had control of before the war. Gradually, that was expanded into control of the entire Iberian Peninsula, all of modern Spain and Portugal, but we won't be going into that in detail. We're going to start missing bits and pieces of the territorial expansion and eventually the territorial losses of Rome as we go. We're getting to the point where we have documentation for all of that and where it happens on multiple fronts every year. It would just bog us down too much. I'm going to try and keep our narrative to about the same pace for the remainder of the Republic and the early bits of the Empire, so some of what we know will have to go as we know more and more. And obviously, there's plenty more to know about ancient Rome than what I'm going into here, and yes, even more than Mike Duncan goes into as well. Uh, by the way, if you want Mike's walkthrough of the Second Punic War, do pull up his History of Rome podcast and check out his five-part episode 23 titled Hannibal. It's worth your time. For our purposes, I'll simply observe that the talented but ultimately frustrated Hannibal, who never quite got the reinforcements he needed to get the job done and take Rome, ultimately died in exile sometime in the 180s, by which point he was in his 60s. He did get to fight Rome one more time, but only as a sub-commander in a naval battle during Rome's war with Antiochus IV Epiphanes' dad, Antiochus the Great, who, as the Book of Maccabees is pleased to observe, got his butt kicked when the legions came calling. Now, after Zama, there's still the Cisalpine-Gallic Wars going on in northern Italy, but those would soon be concluded in Rome's favor, giving them a reasonable hold on their side of the Alps. And by 200, the Romans were freed up enough from that to allow them to pay a little visit to Philip V of Macedon and remind him just how much they didn't appreciate his jumping on the Carthaginian bandwagon in the wake of Cannae. The net result of this Second Macedonian War was, believe it or not, not actually the Roman control and digestion of Macedonia, though you could be forgiven for guessing that. No, instead, Rome's focus was on weakening Macedon and winning more influence among the Greeks, which they certainly did, being invited to participate in the Isthmian Games, which were similar but distinct from the famed Olympic Games in 906. There, the consul who had overseen the war, himself fluent in Greek, proclaimed the Freedom of the Greeks, which basically set up a kind of Greek UN. 
Such leagues were long established as a tradition in Greece, with Rome as the principal enforcer, which was new, but hey, sure, why not? Of course, a reasonable argument for the not side of this would come from hindsight, since 50 years from now, the last traces of real Greek independence from Rome would be erased at the Battle of Corinth in 146. But hey, it's not like the Battle of Corinth ended with the complete destruction of Corinth with all the men being killed and the women being sold into slavery. Right? That's not what happened. Oh, wait, nope. It actually is absolutely like that. Rome's assimilation of the Greeks, at least those in modern Greece, went in like a lamb and out like a lion. Independent Greek kingdoms would carry on outside the Peloponnese for a number of years, most notably in Ptolemaic Egypt, but this destruction of Corinth in 146 marks the end of Greek independence in their old homeland. If you're wondering, yes, Macedon had gotten the stick decades earlier, while the other Greek states were still tending to get the carrot. War elephants came full circle in that particular war against Macedon, appearing now on the Roman side, as part of the legions that brought it close to the kingdom that had helped introduce them to Europe. Of course, getting back to Corinth, that's actually only the second most famous destruction of a city the Romans oversaw in 146. But before we turn our attention back to Carthage, I think I should confirm that yes, the general Roman subjugation of Greek kingdoms during the period between the Second and Third Punic Wars included the war with the Seleucid king Antiochus the Great that I mentioned in Hannibal's Little Epilogue, a war which ran from 192 to 188 and resulted in the Treaty of Apamea, where the Seleucids gave up most of their land in Anatolia, modern Turkey, to the Roman Greek allies of Pergamon and Rhodes. And yes, neither Pergamon nor Rhodes are long for this world, with Rhodes giving up independence in 164, and, well, we'll talk about Pergamon more in the next episode. This war between Rome and Antiochus the Great weakened the Seleucids and certainly got Judas Maccabeus his idea that he should ally with Rome, a tidbit which leads to some glowing praise of Rome in 1st Maccabees. Quote, Judas had heard of the reputation of the Romans. They were valiant fighters and acted amiably to all who took their side. They established a friendly alliance with all who applied to them. He was also told of their battles and the brave deeds that they performed against the Gauls, conquering them and forcing them to pay tribute, and what they did in Spain to get possession of the silver and gold mines there. By planning and persistence, they subjugated the whole region, although it was very remote from their own. They also subjugated the kings who had come against them from the far corners of the earth until they crushed them and inflicted on them severe defeat. The rest paid tribute to them every year. End quote. 1 Maccabees, chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Now, this praise of Rome as valiant fighters perfectly willing to be friendly to you if you are friendly to them may have been true, but it probably didn't help to make the case for First Maccabees making it into the Hebrew Bible, given the way things went in later years between the Romans and the Judeans. But for now, yes, in 161, the Maccabees seemed to have secured a favorable treaty with the Romans, which didn't end all their problems, but as we've seen, was probably the smart move. In 152, the elderly Cato the Censor, a veteran of the Second Punic War from service in his youth, visited Carthage, and was shocked at the revived wealth of the city. Believing a revitalized Carthage was an existential threat to Rome, he began a campaign that would today be seen as incitement to genocide, concluding all of his speeches, on any topic, 
with some form of the phrase Carthago delenda est. Carthage must be destroyed. He didn't get the votes immediately. In fact, Scipio Africanus's son-in-law is said to have begun finishing all his speeches, topical or not, with Carthago servanda est. Carthage must be saved, basically arguing that the Romans needed a bad guy to unite around, that Carthage needed to be that common enemy. This was either prophetic or made up later. Either way, it proved true. There's a little foreshadowing alert for you. Now, come 149, Rome got a Calcis belli, that's a reason for war, when Carthage attacked neighboring Numidia, and with the elder Cato having laid the groundwork, the war was on. The Third Punic War This time around, it really wasn't much of a war. Another Scipio, Scipio Aemilianus, the adoptive grandson of Africanus, laid siege to Carthage, and Carthage fell three years later. There were other battles here and there, including some Carthaginian victories, but honestly, nothing that lifted the siege, and nothing worth diving into. And despite its status as the second most famous tidbit from the Punic Wars, there is no historical evidence that the surrounding fields were then sown with salt. I mean, it isn't mentioned in any of several contemporary accounts of the destruction of Carthage, and the city is rebuilt not too long after. Tune in next week for episode 8.10, Rome, part 3, The War Within. Or, if you're itching to get back to Judea, you'll want to wait until episode 8.13, Prepare the Way. Thanks, as always, to Billy, our sound guy, Russ, our logo designer, the ever-patient Vice Pope Mrs. Popular History, and to the elder Mr. and Mrs. Popular History for the use of the studio space in their house. Thank you all. God bless. Have a great week.